every patient that I care for is like taking care of my own child. My name is Candy, and I'm a nursing assistant at Lifespan. He's a handsome boy. I've been working in the PICU for 10 years. I love the miracles that we see. It's so rewarding. You know, the families that we get to help, they put their child in our hands. We have to be there to support them and take care of them, deliver health with care. Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Whether at the counter or booth or even outside since COVID, it seems everyone likes a quick bite. Before fast food franchises such as McDonald's were a mainstay in our culture, there were places like Jiggers. People, walk, you know, come inside and they're like just mesmerized by the surroundings and that, the history of it all. Back in 2012, we had Hurricane Sandy. Everybody was looking at southern Rhode Island and the severe damage there, but this area had also encountered a storm surge. Instead of having a sloped shoreline, we ended up with a vertical cut because the wave energy just hit the shore and pulled the soil away. I went to my son's Little League baseball game, or as I like to call it, somebody throw a strike. <laughs> Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm David Wright. The 2022 Atlantic hurricane season just began, but scientists are already predicting that because of climate change, there'll be more storms and they're likely to be more severe than in past years. With its 400 miles of coastline, Rhode Island is always vulnerable to erosion, the main culprit in infrastructure failures in the Ocean State's beach areas. In our continuing Green Seeker series, contributing producer-director Dorothy Dickey explores the issue and introduces us to those who are working to change the devastating tide. Breaking news in Newport. Crews still on scene right now after a portion of the cliff walk collapsed. 18 feet just let go and crumbled. City officials say erosion is likely to blame for this. We are experiencing rapid changes in the shoreline across Rhode Island. I was not surprised to see you know, areas of, of the cliff walk collapse or really any areas of Rhode Island's coastline collapse given that we are seeing you know such uh, frequent and intense uh, coastal storms. Um, we're seeing increasing rates of coastal erosion. We're seeing uh, coastal wetlands being inundated by ever higher tides. And we are seeing the, the effects of increased storms, intensity of, of coastal storms, not just hurricanes, but winter storms. That we're gonna feel some impact from Sandy generating huge waves and huge surf. Climate change is the major forcing event in, in seeing these patterns of increased erosion, uh, increased intensity and frequency of storms, and sea level rise and inundation of, of coastal habitat as a result of sea level rise. So the section of the cliff walk that collapsed recently is another symptom of the larger problem. Uh, we don't know that that specific event was related to storms or sea level rise, but in Rhode Island, this is really our, the heart of our quality of life is to be able to come to the shoreline and places like the Newport Cliff Walk 
and to enjoy the water. So when we see that these things happen at Cliffwalk, it's just an illustration of some of the challenges we're facing all across coastal Rhode Island that seem to be only getting worse. We are seeing the impacts of accelerated sea level rise on our shoreline in Narragansett Bay and some of the smaller coves and tributaries. We know here at Stillhouse Cove, this shoreline has been eroding. So I'm standing in a salt marsh right now. This is what I would call the marsh platform or the marsh meadow. This only gets flooded where I'm standing a few times a month during the moon tides. And this entire marsh is really important for protecting the shoreline from wave energy. So the waves come in from Narragansett Bay during a storm, a large nor'easter or a coastal hurricane. This marsh that I'm standing on acts as like a sponge. It absorbs water, it helps break up the wave energy. So it's important for um, protecting our shoreline. And you can see behind me, there's some sand in the marsh that was not placed there by humans. That was actually the little sand beach that used to extend further seaward. And with sea level rise and storm events, that sand is getting pushed onto the marsh and the marsh and the beach are migrating inland. So that's what we see there is now, instead of having that area where the sand was be salt marsh, it's like a little little beach in the in the marsh area so we're seeing the signs of erosion and that shoreline migrating inland right behind us when my husband and i moved to the city of cranston 40 years ago this property was pretty much in an, an abandoned piece of property that was owned by the state of rhode island property had been ignored and neglected in 1978, the city of Providence brought all of their snow from the blizzard of 78 and dumped it here. And inside of the snow were lots of weed seeds. So the property just became overrun with invasive trees and vegetation. It is the only city park for the city of Cranston. It's a five and a half acre site that is a salt marsh two beaches, a boat ramp, and a lot of people don't realize that the city of Cranston is coastal. Back in 2012, we had Hurricane Sandy, and the area that we were trying to plant into at that time washed away. Everybody was looking at southern Rhode Island and the severe damage there, but this area had also encountered a storm surge. Instead of having a sloped shoreline we ended up with a vertical cut because the wave energy just hit the shore and pulled the soil away. It took 10 feet of the park away. Well, you can't stop erosion. Erosion is a natural process and it has been occurring for years and years. But what we can do is try to create conditions that the shoreline won't erode as rapidly. We are looking at uh, adapting to new conditions using nature-based solutions and Instead of trying to fight erosion and fight sea level rise, we're trying to create a shoreline that can adapt to accelerated sea level rise and increased intense storms. So in a case like Stillhouse Cove, once we had the erosion post-Hurricane Sandy, instead of trying to build that bank back to what it once was, the bank was too steep. We actually pulled the bank inland. 
So we lost a little bit of this park, but we ended up with a more gentle slope that we could then install a natural product, which is made out of coconut fiber, and we place them, they look like giant burritos, and we place them one on top of the other to create a gentle slope that we then planted with the native grasses. So let's not try to rebuild the bank the way it was, let's try to regrade and accept that we're gonna keep seeing this erosion and try to prevent future uh, events that are so destructive. Rhode Island is really on the cutting edge of, of coastal management in this part of the world. For the small state, Rhode Island still has 400 miles of coastline and, and that coastline is so essential to our economy, to our ecology, to just everything about who we are as the ocean state. The Northeast has unique environmental conditions. A lot of wind, high energy waves, we get ice and so there's less of a growing season for native plantings and so those are challenges. The Nature Conservancy helped to construct what we call a living shoreline, which consists of a, uh, of a rock berm. So these rocks were placed in a way to slow down the power of the waves and allow for some sediment to accrete behind it and build up. And then we planted uh, the native Spartina, the marsh grasses. This is our second growing season and looks like it's survived the last two winters pretty well. So far, so good. A bluff was eroding and the way we treated it was to build in these stones as what's called toe protection. And then above that, we have a sandbag made out of coconut fiber and sand that's laid across the eroding bluff and then planted on top with, with dune grass. And uh, the idea is that eventually the, the plants, the vegetation will grow through it and root down into the, into the soil and provide natural stabilization. So over here you can see where the living shoreline area ends and what it looked like before treatment. And obviously this bluff is eroding rapidly. You can see very old trees that are ready to, to let go. You can also see the root systems of those trees and that's part of what we try to restore when we do the living shoreline is to give vegetation a chance to, to get rooted. And, but uh, just this illustrates clearly that, that there's a lot more to do just to protect this little area. As a result of climate change and sea level rise, we're seeing the beach and the coastal feature here crumbling into the bay, into the Providence River every year. Recently, there was a concrete wall that collapsed and so the city had to come back in and scramble to make repairs on that wall and so that's sort of a relic of old times and and we're looking wherever possible to replace things like that with a more nature-based uh, approach. Municipalities and agencies will often go to repair what was there the last time just automatically. Trying to repair a failing seawall might buy you a little bit of time but a lot of the times just building back and replacing what was lost is an invitation to trouble because it will probably, if it's failed, it's probably going to fail again. In the long run, the ocean is gonna win. The tide is always gonna win. These strategies are relatively low cost. They're relatively low tech, and they can be done in the course of you know, a couple of months in terms of the time for construction. So compared to other major infrastructure projects, these are a bargain. And, and what you get is you get native plantings, the grasses and the natural features working for you 24-7, 365, and they help to absorb rain and 
They provide habitat for, for birds, marine life, and unlike hard wall, hard revetment, these places maintain public access and people's ability to come and use them safely. We now turn to the All-American Diner. In the pantheon of fast food, diners were the first and for many the go-to for reliable, reasonably priced food. Still a part of our culture today, the iconic eateries actually owe their existence to an enterprising Rhode Island man who came up with the idea 150 years ago. It started right here in Providence, Rhode Island. A, a gentleman by the name of Walter Scott back in the early 1870s, and he got the idea that people needed food late at night. And so he took a horse-drawn wagon, pulled it into the downtown area around Westminster. Johnson & Wales professor and chef Jack Chiaro says the founder of diners got the idea while working at the ProJo's printing press. And it was perfect because people at the uh, Providence Journal were, you know, trying to get the newspapers ready for the morning, and so they'd be working through all hours of the night. Horse-drawn food wagons evolved to large rolling lunch carts, eventually taking the train-like shape we know today. They had the wheels so that you could tow them around. So just think of being on a railroad, traveling, and going to that dining car, right, and getting a real nice meal, even on China or something like that. So they start calling them dining, diner cars. And now it evokes that whole spirit of the railway and eventually you get the name Diner. It's, it's always been a part of the American spirit. The romance of travel helped spur casual solo dining and sharing opinions with strangers. But here, just like we're sitting right now, you could go into a diner all by yourself, sit at a counter, other people sitting right next to you, you're part of a family. You can talk to somebody, someone you don't even know and you can have a conversation. When the talk turned to the menu, Chef Chiaro says the influence of American immigration added a new ingredient. You're getting American food, but foodways are never stagnant. And so, as more immigrants come in, the main cuisine starts to change as well, just like society does, and starts to assimilate into the immigrant foodways. And so you start getting things like chorizo and eggs bratwurst and eggs instead of sausage. So diners are really a melting pot. They reflect the people who own them, the people who are cooking in them, and the, uh, the culture, the society, the neighborhoods in which they're in. The Ever Ready Diner is the centerpiece of the Johnson & Wales University Archives and Museum. It used to sit on Admiral Street in Providence. I used to eat in this place. <laughs> it's real. Chef Chiaro says the Ever Ready is a great teaching tool. A lot of our students, when you talk to them, they, you know, had the idea of even getting into the food business because of the love of, of going with their grandfather or their grandmother to a diner. Those students can study thousands of vintage kitchen items and cookbooks here. Oh, isn't this wonderful? There's an abundance of the fun and familiar here, real menus from presidential dinners, Abraham Lincoln's inaugural banquet bill of fare, and recipes from the French chef at the JFK White House. There's cooking paraphernalia from every era, even an old neon sign from Camille's restaurant on Federal Hill hanging above antique pasta makers. A Howard Johnson waitress uniform along with diner settings have made some yearn for the good old days. These trolley cars, they came from the Woonsocket Fairmount line. And the lure of those original diners was born again when the old Purple Cat restaurant in the Chapachet village of Gloucester was torn down recently, revealing a relic the original diner. So the back car was where 
the kitchen area was, and the front car was the diner part. And this all started in back, way back when? 1929. For decades, Kevin Lavoie's family captured the local flavor here, especially in the early days when times were hopping. Right about that same time was when the Pasco horse racing track was opening up right down the street down here. So it was a very popular venue back then for the, a lot of people were coming in to go to the racetrack and also the horse owners and jockeys and stuff, you know, frequented the place quite often. And today is no exception. There's a big appetite for the surviving diners in Rhode Island. Good morning. Whether at the counter or booth, or even outside since COVID, it seems everyone likes a quick bite. Before fast food franchises such as McDonald's were a mainstay in our culture, there were places like Jiggers. People walk, you know, come inside and they're like just mesmerized by the surroundings and that, the history of it all. Owner Carrie Myers says Jiggers has been a staple on Main Street in East Greenwich for decades, an original greasy spoon. In 1917, this started as a lunch cart. Um, the gentleman's nickname was Jigger. And in 1940, they brought in the first diner car. It was all men, waiters at the time with the little bow tie collars. And then in 1950, they actually Worcester um, manufactured several of the boxcar diners. And they brought this one in, they closed the streets, had a parade, brought the car in. And um, it's been Jiggers ever since. It was open all night and, you know, there was bar fights and they were um, able to smoke in the diners. It was just a whole different atmosphere than what they have today. Atmosphere is what brings nostalgia lovers here from around the world, as well as regulars like Ken Chulo. He comes almost every day all the way from Providence. It feels like home. Everything's made from scratch. I don't have to say a word. I sit down, my coffee's in front of me. They know exactly what I want. So it's, it's perfect. Diners are famous for simple, inexpensive fare with a side of fast service. For Chulo, it's comfort food. So good. <laughs> and a dash of friendship. Like they used to say in Cheers, they, like, they know your name. And that's what it is. They talk, you know, waitresses are like bartenders. You tell them everything. How's your pancakes? The best. The best? Okay. Diners still cater to customers across the country. New Jersey has the most with 600. There are a couple dozen left in Rhode Island, including five, like the modern diner in Pawtucket, that are on the National Register of Historic Places. At Jiggers, the cook is always flipping Rhode Island's signature Johnny Cakes, they were recently featured in a food face-off on the TV show, The Talk. Here representing the Ocean State is the owner and chef of Jigger's Diner in Providence, Rhode Island, Carrie Meyer. I served at the Johnny Cakes with sausage, hollandaise sauce, and fresh sliced avocado, and we won. And Myers has the trophy to commemorate it. Now she's planning to open a second restaurant, Jigger's 2, in North Kingstown. As for the Purple Cat, Lavoie says the new owners plan to refurbish the original trolley car, transforming it into an ice cream parlor. Meanwhile, it has become a town headquarters for memories. There's been people stopping all the time, taking pictures, telling stories. The interest has been overwhelming, really. What makes that so important to people? That sense of community, I think, goes a long ways with it. The Johnson of Wales Museum has been closed to visitors in recent years. However, in celebration of the College of Food Innovation and Technology's upcoming 50th anniversary, they are planning to open soon. Finally tonight, we'd like to share with you a bit of laughter. 
As part of our My Take series, we recently visited the Comedy Park in Cranston to find out the ins and outs of being a comedian with local stand-up entertainer Bill Simons, who has agreed to let us in on some of the secrets of the trade. As a comic or as a comedian, as an entertainer, if you can get that, that first laugh and sustain those laughs, it's a peaceful place. Hi, my name is Bill Simus, and this is my take on comedy. People without kids, your smiles scream hope. Because here's how a parent smiles. I've figured it out. Pay attention, focus. Look right here. Here's a parent smile. You ready? <laughs> We smile way down deep. It's in this area. It's covered with booze and Benadryl and broken dreams. I think pain for a lot of comedians is where uh, comedy derives from, whether it's a defensive mechanism or you get to hide behind the microphone. And, uh, and mine, unfortunately, was, um, you know, my parents were divorced when I was a kid, very young, uh, so I lived that life. And then I was married, never wanted to be divorced, and then uh, I got divorced. So it was after my divorce that I knew that I had always made people laugh, but I really think I needed to kind of travel that lane to not only heal myself, but I'm sure other people were feeling pain. <laughs> and here's the difference, right? I think about how my parents raised me, how their parents raised them, everything changes. My son Colton, living the divorce life under my roof, I'll say, hey Colton, mom's coming to pick you up. Do I her to come before dinner? or after dinner. And this is my son's response to everything at his age, ready? <clears throat> I'm like, what the hell is this? Are you having a seizure? Do you need medical attention? It's like, Dad, I'm flossing. If that was little Billy in 1984 at 10, 11 years old, and my dad said, hey boy, Mom's coming to get you. Do you want her to come before dinner or after dinner? I was like, hey, Dad. <laughs> My father would have leaned down and been like. <laughs> to me, what makes a good comic is knowing who you are and not trying to go too far outside that. Because the audience is smart, and they'll know when you're pushing it too far. Meaning, like, I don't fish. But yet, if I tried to talk about fishing and the little intricacies of fish, like, I don't know, I don't know. So I was like, maybe I heard a story and I'm trying to talk about it. It doesn't flow. You gotta be likable, you gotta flow, and talk about what you know. Stay in your lane. If you're a joke teller, do jokes. If you're an impersonator, nail the impersonations. If you're a storyteller, like I feel, you know, I am, then, then use all the gifts that God gave you to uh, create the story and to use pausing and, and timing and facial expressions. Uh, I think the crowd, will go with you. And to me, a good comic is someone that knows who they are, what type of comedy they want to do, and they hone in on that skill. What is it like to bomb? Uh, I don't know, I've never bombed. <laughs> I can't say that I've ever bombed. I've been in routines or, or stories where I already know as I'm going into the story that maybe the crowd really isn't feeling this topic and I'll find a way to segue out into something that, you know, I've done this long enough where, and I have enough material where I can kind of take that two, two and a half hours, three hours of stuff that I have to kind of, if I needed to, 
adjust out so that the bombing maybe isn't as bad, if that's the word you want to use. I look at old videos of, of me 15 years ago and as a comedian, I can't even watch it because you grow, you morph, you hone your skills, you become someone else, you go through life experiences and that changes who you are on stage and then you kind of find your rhythm and if you can find your rhythm, you might have some success here. I went to my son's Little League baseball game or as I like to call it, somebody throw a strike. <laughs> it's Thursday, I've been here since Monday. It's still the first inning, the score is 97 to 75. Lord Jesus, make it end. I wanna go home and Netflix. Have you ever rooted against your child or grandchild to strike out so you can go home? Cause I have. My name is Bill Simus, and this has been my take on comedy. If you'd like to see Bill Simus live, he'll be performing at the Comedy Park on July 15th and 16th. And that's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm David Wright. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. Or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thanks and good night. <laughs>